Hello and welcome back to the Active Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Ann Knightley, Head of Marketing at Disable. And today I'm joined by Active Ambassador, Disable Person and GP Hannah Barrow Brown. Um, for those listening, I am a white woman in my 30s with curly brown and blonde hair. I wear glasses and I use a wheelchair. I have cerebral palsy and I also have complex PTSD. Hannah joins me today to share insights on how to foster good mental health and how to deal with challenging mental health periods when they happen. Drawing on her extensive medical background as a GP, we hope that these practical tips and advice for managing mental health will help everyone, especially disabled people. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're a very busy person. Um, Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. This is lovely. Um, So, yeah, I'm Hannah. I'm an Access Able Ambassador. As you said, I'm also a GP and a disability and LGBTQ campaigner um, and writer. So I'm currently in the process of writing my first book. Um, A visual description of me. I am a white woman with bright red, very big glasses um, and very short kind of curly reddish brownish hair um, wearing generally a multicoloured outfit and I'm also a wheelchair user who has EDS and ADHD because we like to play acronym bingo over here. So yeah, it's lovely to be with you. Thank you, Hannah. We love an acronym at Accessable as well. <laughs> um, it's one of those traps I fall into often where I use an acronym without explaining it. But um, <laughs> but yeah, we when when you have a when you have a collection of things to bring to the fore and bring to your introduction, we always need to find a way of shortening, don't we? <laughs> Um, so yeah, lovely to have you with us. Really excited about this conversation. Um, and I think to kick off, um, it would be great to hear about um, sort of your experiences as a GP, um, maybe some of the common signs of, um, sort of mental health and mental health challenges that you've observed and how you feel that individuals can recognise these signs in themselves or their loved ones. So as a GP, I'd say that about 50%, up to 50% of my consultations each day um, are have mental health elements to them. Um, the majority of people will come in specifically for mental health, but we know that physical and mental health are not really two separate things. We've just kind of separated them out as a society. Um, and so I would say that a lot of my conversations, we end up drawing on mental health and having a chat about it, but I'd say about half of them come in specifically for that. So this is a huge area that we're still not great at talking about. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily always recognise the signs because we have this very stereotypical image of what mental health problems look like. Um, People think they're going to be super depressed and get into bed, not be able to come out and be crying all the time. And yeah, that can be the case for some people, but it's hugely varied. When one in four people in the general population have problems with their mental health every year, it's going to be quite a varied presentation. So some of the things that I often kind of suggest people look out for are things like what we call anhedonia, because in medicine, we love a fancy word that makes ourselves feel cleverer. Anhedonia is where you stop enjoying things that previously you've always enjoyed taking part in. So if you're not enjoying those activities anymore and you notice something's changed, that's something to kind of think about. And then there are loads of kind of more physical symptoms. So it can affect your appetite. It can affect your sleep. Um, But you may also find that you just feel like a bit more apathetic 
about life. You find you might just not really care at all. So far from being really frustrated and angry all the time, you actually are just kind of like, meh, constantly about stuff that potentially used to excite you. Um, some people get a lot more withdrawn. So if you've noticed that, you know, one of your friends or family just suddenly isn't coming out so much anymore, doesn't really want to talk or engage so much anymore, that could be a sign that there's something deeper going on. But similarly, people can get more easily frustrated and can, you can find that people have got a shorter temper. So generally, it's about knowing your people, knowing yourself and knowing what's different for you. And if something has changed, if you've noticed that things aren't quite ticking along, then the sooner you can like try and get support, the sooner you can reach out and say to somebody, doctor, friend, family member, whoever that may be, I'm not feeling right, something isn't right here the sooner we can try and get you the support you might need. So it's really useful to kind of think about those signs and think about it as a difference in you rather than a stereotypical, I'm sad all the time and want to hide in bed. If you want to hide in bed all the time and you're sad, that's perfectly legitimate too. But it's not always just that. Thank you. Wow. So, so much that resonates with me from what you said there. And I think, the, you know, the first thing that I want to bring out is that the the, the link you know mental health and physical health are not two separate things in fact often you'll find particularly if you have a physical health condition and a mental health condition that the two of them kind of operate intrinsically that's oh. certainly my experience I wonder definitely. if you have experiences that speak to that as well yeah definitely I often say that it's our bodies are a bit like a computer so you have the hardware which is the body itself and you have the software which is the brain that makes the body work and if either one of those is kind of out of sync or struggling it affects the other you can't have functioning hardware with rubbish software and vice versa and I think we need to think of our bodies like that so I know when I'm low in mood or I'm tired or I'm struggling a bit mentally my pain gets a lot worse with my EDS and so it's when we're asking about this as clinicians and when we're saying you know do you feel like your mood is dropping or something in relation to pain that's not because we're saying it's all in your head that's not what we're saying at all but we're saying there is a really clear link here and it's really important we tease that out so, because otherwise we're never going to quite solve it we're never going to be able to make it better if we don't address the whole problem holistically yeah completely agree and and I think you know the other thing that I just kind of wanted to bring out there is 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 really important knowing yourself and knowing the things that kind of tend to happen to you when you're struggling so you know for me personally I um, have a tendency to distract when I'm struggling mm -hmm. and so that might look like me working a lot or working more hours than I might do usually or just generally being kind of hyper productive all of the time and it's taken quite a long time for me to understand that that is a sign of me not doing very well because actually outwardly to the rest of the world with hustle culture and everything else, you know, we're encouraged and pushed to to do the hustle, to keep going, to be the girl boss, to mm -hmm. um, keep on top of everything. And I, you know, it's as I say, it's taken some time and some work for me to learn and understand that actually that that isn't what success looks like for me. That is actually generally what struggling looks like for me. Definitely. And it's so personal. I tend to hide. So I'll just withdraw and not see my friends. And it's only when somebody goes, uh, hi, are you still alive over there? I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not doing well. Hannah is not good. <laughs>
yeah this is happening again for, for me it's like when did you last take the time to sit down and watch Netflix or read a book <laughs> and if I can't remember then it's right okay you need to stop you need to take some time out and you know sit back and relax a little bit so all of that said um be good to spend a little bit of time talking about sort of practical strategies as we said it is all individual um but any practical strategies generally for coping with um mental health challenges that you found helpful personally or that you found helpful to recommend to your patients yeah so there's a whole range of stuff and obviously you know as you say it is incredibly personal what works for one person won't work for another so this is never going to be global advice um but also, you know, this is out with treatment. Medications and like organised therapies can be incredibly helpful. But I think it's worth thinking about what we as individuals can also do alongside that. So first thing I generally say is if you can try and share it with people, whether that's your GP, a trusted friend, family member, because low mood and mental health struggles can make you feel incredibly alone and incredibly isolated and like you're the only person in the world who feels this way and nobody else understands you that is probably the most evil part of mental health problems you're not alone okay particularly in the disabled community because we're so much more likely to experience mental health problems so it's really important to try and share that when you can and allow people to kind of reassure you that actually you're not by yourself with this and even if there isn't somebody you know who you feel you can talk to or you don't feel able to speak to a doctor for whatever reason there is always somebody who will listen so my recommendation to literally everyone, whether or not you have mental health problems yourself, is to put the number 116123 into your phone. That is the phone number for Samaritans. You never know when you might need it. They are a 24-7 helpline and they are trained just to listen and to be there whenever you need. You don't need to be suicidal to phone Samaritans. So that's 116123. Bung it in your phone. It can be really, really helpful to have them there. Um, in terms of strategies that I find really helpful and my patients told me they found really helpful, there's a whole range of stuff out there and it depends what suits you and it's worth kind of trying a range of things. One thing that we know has a lot of evidence is mindfulness and um, there are some really great apps out there to help you learn how your brain works, how you can sense your brain. So if you're like me and you tend to catastrophize or your brain goes at a million miles an hour because thank you neurodivergency, um, it can be really helpful just to kind of try and learn how to bring yourself back to a moment of calm. Um, there are some great apps like Headspace. Headspace is great um, to the extent we gave it to all NHS staff during the pandemic because shockingly we were all stressed out of our trees and it did really help. There's loads of evidence for that. Um, some people find journaling can be really helpful. Being creative, using your hands. We know that actually there's loads of research that doing anything crafty with your hands really can benefit your mental health and there's loads of interesting research about all the funky hormones that get released in your brain when you do that whether that's knitting gardening whatever it is and on the note of gardening ecotherapy is possibly my favorite thing so that's getting out into nature and whether you're going out to your local park sitting in your nearest field or like me crawling around an allotment because I love gardening, body hates it, don't care, I'm just going to do it on all fours. Um, finding some time to kind of get out into nature is really, really important. So even if you just take five minutes whilst putting the bins out to stand and take a few deep breaths, that is something. Or sit and take a few deep breaths. Taking some time outside is really, really vital. And I know when I've had mental health problems in the past, making myself go outside once a day for however long a period of time has made a world of difference to me.
yeah, I agree. I was I was nodding along with everything you said there, <laughs> Hannah, and and particularly the the kind of outdoor ecotherapy. So I have a little dog, little King Charles called Poppy, and um, just getting outside with her once a day mm-hmm. makes such a difference to me. And I think I often find that when I have a period when I've been struggling, and then we go out and we go on a bit of a longer walk, or we manage to go to a walk somewhere that's just a little bit more sort of secluded and feels a bit more countryside-ish um I'll I'll sort of say to myself oh oh when was the last time I did this oh I can't remember the last Mm -hmm. time we did this oh I feel so much better for doing it I should try and do it more regularly um so I just wanted to say that that really resonated and then the, the your your first point about you know sharing finding somebody to talk to um I think is just so important and something that I often say is like openness and being totally open about the situation that I'm in almost feels like kryptonite to my mental health issues because mm-hmm. um you know your your brain may tell you that you are alone or that you're strange or odd for feeling like this and as you say it is an incredibly isolating experience and actually when you start to talk to somebody that you can trust you will learn that you're not alone that your feelings are incredibly common that we are all linked by you know stressful experiences or things that we find challenging um so yeah just wanted to sort of sort of underline that there and I think you know we have touched on some some points from this next question that I'm going to bring out here but there may be some more that we want to bring forth um so thinking about how the experience of living with a disability intersects with mental health, mental health conditions and any specific challenges that disabled people might face in terms of mental well-being. So you could write a PhD on this and I'm pretty sure someone has Um, but we know from the evidence that people with long-term conditions and disabilities are two to three times more likely to experience mental health problems than the general population which when you consider that in the general population, one in four of us will can have a mental health problem every year, means that it's it would be quite remarkable for a disabled person to never struggle with their mental health, just on the basis of statistics. Um, and this is really multifactorial. OK, so we've already touched on the kind of interplay between physical and mental health and how our physical conditions can impact our mental health and vice versa. But we've also got to think about the world we live in and the world our mental health exists in. So we know that there is masses of ableism in our society and that disabled people, we face constant daily barriers that will impact on our mental health and will challenge our identity. And at the core of your mental health is your own identity, is who you believe yourself to be. And so when that gets challenged, that's really difficult for us to process and that impacts our mental health. And for us as disabled people, that is challenged every single day. We are far more likely to experience social isolation. We are far more likely to struggle to do things like get outdoors into the great outdoors and into nature because it's often not as accessible for us. And that identity and our own relationship with our bodies can be really challenging. So, you know, for those of us who have become disabled, we've gone through a huge transition often triggered by a really traumatic event that in itself can take a lot of teasing apart. For those of us who were born disabled and have always been this way, seeing our bodies in relationship to in relation to other people's bodies um, and trying to kind of build that positive relationship with our bodies mentally going, mine doesn't do what it is in a big inverted commas supposed to do 
and getting your head around that and not hating your body for that sometimes, which I think we all do, can be really tricky and that can play on your mental health as well. And then finally, as disabled people, we are more likely to experience pain. We are more likely to spend considerable amount of time in healthcare facilities and have a lot of strangers poking and prodding us and talking about us rather than to us and all of the challenges that come with disability. So it's not really surprising that many of us, many more of us struggle with our mental health than the general population. And I think it's something that we're slowly starting to discuss more. I think we are battling some very challenging narratives whilst we do that as well. So things like the superhero narrative, inspiration porn, all of this sort of stuff can add extra layers of complexity onto our own relationships with our bodies and our identity. Um, so yeah, I think there's a huge intersection between disability and physical health. And um, yeah, that's there's another book in there somewhere, um, which I will get around to writing one day. <laughs> there absolutely is. I would so love to read that book. Um, so, so much insight there, Hannah. And I think, you know, it makes me think about my own journey and it makes me also think about the prevalence this is anecdotal, but the prevalence that I have found in talking to other disabled people of of medical trauma in yeah. in in our community and in, in in disabled people, because we often have to face quite challenging procedures from mm -hmm. from you know sometimes quite a young age, um, but that maybe non-disabled people might not encounter until later on in their life or might not encounter at all, and this this has to sort of become part of just our normal. It's sort of absorbed into just our day-to-day our -day life and our day-to-day -day routine. It's something that we are expected to just kind of deal with. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that's science says that, that sometimes our brains just can't. Sometimes our brains just can't deal with all of that fear, all of that worry, all of that anxiety. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's it's not surprising. It's not surprising that there mm. is um, more of a prevalence of mental health struggle, struggles or challenges within the disabled community than without it. Um, so yeah, re really insightful. Thank you. Um, I think sort of touching on some of the, the bits that we've covered previously, but sort of to wrap up, it would be great to hear um, about how you've sort of been able to navigate things like misconceptions as a GP and a disabled person working in the medical field, working within healthcare, and even misconceptions around mental health, physical health, and indeed the link between both of them. So I think understanding that link has been absolutely key. And I think that's something that we often don't pay enough attention to. I'm not sure it's necessarily a misconception because I think the second you take a step back and you go, well, wait, obviously, obviously, as a disabled person, you've got all of this other stuff going on, that's gonna take a mental toll. I don't think that con connection is made very often because I don't think the time and the effort is put into thinking about it. But I think we've also got to think of it's not so much as misconceptions that we're dealing with, but in terms of the huge limitations we're dealing with. 
um, within kind of social care, but mainly within the NHS and within mental health services. So, you know, I'm constantly referring people into mental health services and getting the response. There just isn't anything for them at the moment. We don't have the resource. We can't do this. You're going to have to try this. And I'm getting that every single day not only in mental health, but in every element of the NHS. Um, and so I think when you're already working in a system that is struggling with non-disabled population um, and supporting their mental health, those of us who perhaps require slightly more nuanced care, who require an understanding of the interplay between kind of physical disability potentially and mental health, neurodivergence and mental health, we really fall through the cracks. We really are not receiving that care and that support we need because there just isn't the resource to do it. We don't have the staff to do it. We don't have the staff with the training to do it. And I mean, that's the biggest challenge we face across the NHS, but I think it's particularly prevalent in mental health because as much as we as a society keep kind of trying to say that, yeah, mental and physical health are you know equal and they're equally important, in reality, our systems don't like support that plan, don't support that theory. Um, and so I think it's not necessarily that people don't understand the connection when they take the time to sit back and think about it. It's that they don't have the time to sit back and think about it. Mm. Um, and it tends to be a lot of care we deliver right now. The risk is that it falls into mental health support by numbers. And the challenge of mental health issues, mental illness, is that it is so personal. So the challenges you face as a disabled woman are very different to the challenges I face as a disabled woman. We're not even the same as, you know, a disabled cohort. So, of course, the experiences that a therapist or whoever may have with a non-disabled person versus either of us are going to be even more different yet again. And um, trying to get that support is really, really challenging. And I think it's not a lack of like enthusiasm or trying on people's part it's just that the systems we work within are depressingly utterly broken yeah the resource just isn't there and and you know it makes me makes me think about it. so I've just finished a, a stint of of three years of private therapy which I was fortunate yeah. enough to be able to access myself and um in the last session which was incredibly emotional my therapist told me about how much she'd learned from me, mm -hmm. about how much she'd learned from working with a disabled yeah. person and how ultimately that was going to support her to be a better therapist and to yeah. be able to help a wider range of people. And and I, so I think I just kind of wanted to underline that really in that, you know, we're all always learning together. Mm -hmm. and, and as you say, it's not about a lack of enthusiasm or a lack of want it is about a resourcing challenge often and it is about sometimes broken systems and I, I I would just urge absolutely everybody you know disabled not disabled struggling with mental health not struggling with mental health working in the system or not to just always be open to learning and developing our knowledge because I don't think it's ever something we can really be done with yeah, I think, I mean, I am, I'm very lucky. I'm able to get a private therapist 
um, who does have a really good understanding of disability because I actively went out and sought one. Um, and I wanted somebody who understood a brain that goes 100 miles an hour and a body that can't and how that interplay works. But that's not something that's open to a lot of disabled people for, you know, very obvious reasons. Hello, cost of living crisis. Um, and so it is really, really challenging to kind of get that support that people need at the moment. Um, but yeah, if you can, even if it's just a friend or someone, reach out to somebody because we do want to try and help. I promise we go into this wanting to try and help, even if it's really difficult for us to do so sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there'll they'll always be somebody there to listen as you say if it, if it is the Samaritans if it is a friend if it's reaching out to people like you and I through the mm -hmm. channels that we write through etc oh, yeah. you know I'm always very keen to hear from people who've resonated with things that I've shared so if if this episode has resonated with you then do feel free to get in touch with yeah. Accessable directly and we can field any queries either for myself or for Hannah. So I feel like we could talk about this all day long, um, but unfortunately we are going to have to wrap up the episode. Um, so thank you so much, Hannah, for your time today. I think that your insight has been incredibly valuable um, and I think that it will go to, on to supporting um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast. So thank you again. Um, please tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work. So I have a website which is www.drhannahbarandbrown.com um, and I'm on Insta at drhannahbb and Twitter what X whatever we're calling it today um, at drhannahbarandbrown. So yeah do come and say hello. Wonderful. Thank you Hannah. Thank you to our listeners for um, tuning in. You'll also see Hannah throughout our various channels of communication as one of our fabulous ambassadors so keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, thank you again for tuning in listeners and do join us again soon for another episode of the Actors Able podcast. Thanks for listening to the Actors Able podcast. If you want to find out more about our work and mission you can visit www.accessable.co.uk Visit our social media pages at AccessAble UK on most channels or email marketing at accessable.co.uk.